Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for uh, Thursday, September 3rd, 2020. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about what we've been up to at the virtual water cooler. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I am joined on today's episode by Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And writer Swai Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. All right, guys. So we're recording this on a Thursday, which is a little weird, uh, but several of the regular crew are going to be out traveling tomorrow in advance to of uh, the uh, Labor, Labor Day weekend coming up. So we're only going to have two podcast episodes this week. So we had the, the news episode on Monday and then rounding things out with uh, a water cooler episode today. I think um, actually Peter is on the way or maybe in Las Vegas already to see Tenet. And uh, I guess that's a good transition into what we've been doing because Brad, you went to the movie theater, movie theater to see Tenet. Indeed, I did. Um, Cinemark is having these private watch parties where you can pay to rent out an entire theater uh, to yourself and up to uh, 20 total people can come with you. It's incredibly affordable um, when you consider how much it would usually cost to pay for every ticket to rent out a theater during normal times. But I'm guessing Cinemark is trying to take what they can get and figures... People might um, feel safer if they are able to be in a theater with just their friends and people that they trust. So they don't have to worry about strangers. And that's exactly why I took advantage of this. So um, in my area, it only cost uh, $150 to rent out a theater for a new release movie. In this case, Tenet. It's only 100 if you want to do it for older movies like Jurassic Park and The Goonies and stuff. Uh, so uh, me and um, my friend uh, Ben just rounded up um, a bunch of our friends who we knew would want to go back to movies and see Tenet. And there were 16 of us total, and uh, they take you in and, like, um, make sure that you, like, they have a head count of how many people are in there. You have to have your mask on in the lobby and in the hall until you get into the theater. Uh, um, You keep it on unless you're, you know, obviously drinking or eating popcorn. And since there's, you know, so few people in there, you have enough room to spread out and really just enjoy the experience. And, man, it felt great to be back in theaters Um, you know, there's obviously a lot of shortcomings and detriments when it comes to the theatrical experience when you're there, when there are strangers around you and you can't control what other people are doing with their phones and talking and all that nonsense. And 
this was great because, you know, a lot of people that I know, they aren't jerks when it comes to attending movies. And just being there, being able to see a movie like Tenet on the big screen again, it had been since early March uh, since I'd been in the theaters. The last movie I saw was Onward. And this was just a great way to be back. I'm, I'm glad that I was able to see this movie on the big screen because it definitely offers a true, like, big theatrical experience. This, the sound uh, in this movie is is incredible. Even though there's been complaints about some of the sound mixing, I part of me feels like some of that is just the theater sound setup and them not optimizing it correctly for the movie. But there, because there were a couple scenes that I had some issues hearing the dialogue, but it wasn't overwhelmingly so, so I wasn't frustrated by it. Uh, the score by Ludwig Göransson is just like incredible. Just the way it pulses throughout this movie is, is just fantastic, and I just love the the experience of watching this unfold. It's such a complex narrative, and there's lots of exposition to explain exactly how time inversion works and what's happening. And there's a lot of interesting uh, twists, and just the way the the story uh, you know continues to to spiral, um, or not really spiral, but like I guess unweave itself. And yeah, I just, uh, all of my friends afterwards, after we got out, we were just kind of like talking through it and, you know, getting a grasp on it. Cause it's the kind of movie you definitely have to see more than once, uh, to really fully get a, a full understanding of what happens when and how certain things work. Um, and it's, it's challenging, but in a very, uh, satisfying way. And yeah, so, so yeah, it was just a, a great experience all around. I've heard a lot of people say that, Brad, like you have to see it twice. Um, I, I sort of felt like I needed to see The Prestige twice right after I got out of that movie. Like to, to um, I don't know, like that movie hinges on a reveal at the end that makes you sort of like want to rewatch the movie with a bunch of other things in mind. And I'm wondering if this is sort of a similar experience or if this is more of like, you just need to see it again to like get a basic understanding of like what you actually saw. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where yeah. there's like a difference between the two. It's, it's a mix of both actually, because once you've seen the, the movie the whole way through, when you watch it again, you have a, a new understanding of what's happening in front of you and, and understanding how uh, the narrative play, plays out because of how complex the time inversion is. Um, and that, and that complexity of the time inversion is also something that makes uh, a second viewing necessary because you have to really understand and get a grasp on the mechanics of how time inversion works and how it affects forward and backward uh, motion of time. It's um, it can definitely be confusing. Um, and we, and that was something that we talked about after the movie too, of like uh, whether or not everyone really fully understood it. And if anybody says that they fully understand everything in this movie, when they come out, they're a goddamn liar. Um, because uh, there's just, there's just no way there's, there's way too much going on. I just, I just don't think that it's possible. Um, but, but it, it's just, it was a great experience. And I, I hope, um, I hope that people get a chance to see this in theaters. Obviously I, I, I don't recommend, you know, going to see it. If you can't control who's in the theater with you, it, it can be rough unless you can see that there are maybe only like a handful of people in there with you. You know, if there's a seating chart that you can see in advance, um, but if you can take advantage of like a watch party scenario like this, I, I definitely would recommend doing that. I wonder if that's going to be a thing moving forward, even like, you know, like everybody else talks about, oh, when all of this is over, like, I, I don't know exactly what the world is going to look like when all of this is over. But I, I wonder if movie theaters are still or theater chains around the country are still going to offer this kind of thing just for people who are still maybe a little uneasy about returning to group settings like even you know years from now um because it seems like 
I guess it, I guess it depends on how willing the general audience is to return to theaters and like whether they would be making enough money to make that a viable thing for them. But it sounds like just so, so much of a better experience watching a movie with just your friends in the theater without having to worry about, you know, any of the normal crap that you were talking about before. So uh, I'm glad that you had that experience and, and uh, it went well. And, and Peter, I'm sure we'll talk about that probably on next week's episode because he's having it right now or, or very soon. Um, so let's transition into what we've been reading. Jacob, what have you been reading lately? Uh, I read the, or at least the first half of, The French and Indian War by Walter R. Bornman. And I'm a history buff, so this was very much up my alley. It's one of those cases where I realized that I know a great deal about the American Revolution, but I didn't know a lot about the French and Indian War or the Seven Years' War, as it's known in Europe. So I decided to read a book about it so I could educate myself. And I realized pretty early in the book the reason why myself and probably most Americans aren't familiar with this war is that it's hard to sum up and explain why it happened. It's similar to why World War II was easier to teach in World War One. In World War II, you have a straightforward villain character in Adolf Hitler who's invading Europe. Everybody has to fight him back. And there's a, there's a black and white narrative to World War II that makes it teachable and easy to embed in our brain. Whereas both World War One and the French and Indian War are the result of a breakdown of alliances and treaties that are arcane to modern minds and how it is a massive sprawling war being fought for reasons that even those involved in them really can't explain why they're fighting other than, oh, we're England and they're France, we need to fight. Uh, so it's been really illuminating understanding the ins and outs of this conflict and how the minor characters in this war, like a young George Washington and a younger Benjamin Franklin, the seeds of the American Revolution are planted here and the war is essentially taxing the colonies to the point where uh, revolution is inevitable. So it's a really interesting uh, fill-in for me to finally understand this conflict and understand how it genuinely is really important to American history, even though it's really hard to grasp at first, especially in the context of, you know, a, a an American history textbook from high school. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm right there with you, Jacob, where like I learned about this in school, but it definitely is one of those conflicts that like went in one year and, and directly out the other. Like I could not have even told you what years this happened or whether it predated or, or came after the American Revolution. 1756 like, little... through 1763, Ben Pearson. That's how little I remember about it. Um, but yeah, that sounds that sounds pretty cool. Let me know what you think about, about it when it's done, if, if the whole thing is uh, as, as illuminating as the first half. Yeah, it's only 200 um, pages long. It's, 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 it's a brisk read. It's not like it's a thousand page tome like some biographies are. It's okay. it's designed to be something that you like, like paints it in a, in a broad, brief picture for you. I mean, there probably are longer books out there about the subject, but uh, Borman's prose is very much to the point. Let's get in, get out and do an overview uh, for anybody who wants to know this. And if they want to learn more, there are other resources out there. All right. Uh, Chris, what have you been reading? Uh, I read Song of Spider-Man, which is the account of the now infamous Broadway show Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark. Uh, and the book was written by Glenn Berger, who co-wrote um, the book for Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark. So he has uh, very detailed insight info on, on the making of this production. And uh, it was great. It's a great read. It's, it's very amusing. Um, it, it shows you just how wrong everything can go on a big production like this. It doesn't really paint the best picture of Julie Taymor, who who directed uh, the show, and she directed The Lion King, obviously, in a bunch of movies. And uh, it paints her as basically someone who is 100% uh, 
unwilling to compromise. And a part of that is commendable. You know, people who don't want to compromise for their art. You know, she's very much an artist with a capital A and she does not want to compromise for anything. But the book, it doesn't really throw her under the bus. Like Glenn Berger says over and over again, how much he respects her and how great an artist she is and all this stuff. But it kind of, you know, hammers home that if she had just compromised just a little bit here and there, uh, things wouldn't have gone as terribly wrong as they did. You know, people were just constantly getting injured and, uh, it, you know, it, it's it's a whole thing. Things did not go well for this show. And it, it kind of hints that if, if Julie Taymor had just sort of just given in here and there, things would have gone just a bit smoother. But it, it's a it's a good read overall. Um, yeah, so I, I dug it. Song of Spider-Man. When I, I vaguely remember this whole story sort of playing out, Chris, was this like, what, 10 years ago or something when when this show was sort of like trying to get off the ground? Yeah, it, it, I don't remember the exact dates, but um, yeah. And it had did a, somebody like die? I know there were a bunch of injuries, but were there any deaths? On no, the- no one died. But um, there was one guy who uh, the show involved a lot of aerial stunts because obviously it's Spider Man, and they had you know all this wire work and stuff. And uh, one guy like fell a, a ridiculous amount of distance. I think it was like thirty feet uh, from like the. the the top of the theater to, to this like pit they had in the theater, sort of where the orchestra would go. And Jeez. so there were, a, there were a lot of injuries. Um, there were no deaths, thankfully. Uh, although actually it's am- not amusing, but it, it darkly amusing. Like when the, the book starts off, there's this whole thing about how everyone's meeting and the guy who spearheaded the whole thing, the, the producer, he's about, they're, they're celebrating that they're going to get this done. You, you know, they're about to, start planning things out. And during the celebration party, he, he drops dead of a heart attack. So it's like right from the start, there's like, uh Oh, this, this show is probably cursed and things just get worse from there. Wow. <laughs> um, do you think, you know, I remember like vaguely, like I said, when this story was sort of happening and just being like, man, I really hope I get to see a documentary about this one day. Do you think that this book is the closest you're going to get to the sort of behind the scenes truth of, of what happened there? Or do you think that there is a chance that maybe a documentary might come out? You know, it's interesting in the book, they point out that one of the other producers, he actually had his son document everything going on behind the scenes. And the reason he did that was to keep tabs on the production. And he was, you know, he was basically just like spying on the entire production while, you know, in front of everyone's face. Like they didn't actually stop to think that since this guy was the producer's son, he'd be reporting back to him, but there is a lot of behind the scenes footage apparently. So it'd be great if one day someone did cut that together. Although I, I have a feeling like rights issues, like, cause you know, Marvel is obviously involved with this and they, they mm-hmm. probably don't want, a documentary out there about how they failed to get something off the ground like this. So I don't know if that'll yeah. ever see the light of day, <laughs> man. Uh, okay. So that was called uh, what song of Spider-Man. Yes. Right? Okay, cool. That sounds good. Uh, all right. I read the murder of Roger Ackroyd, which is one of the uh, Hercule Poirot novels by Agatha Christie. I've talked about several of these on uh, previous editions of the water cooler. Um, I remember seeing this one on several of the list of, you know, the, the best Poirot novels. Cause he was in that character was in almost 50 books over the years. Um, so, you know, I have not uh, gone through every single one of these. I'm just sort of picking and choosing based on things like lists and, and just, uh, you know, synopses that sound interesting to me. Um, this one was, uh, probably not one that I would have grabbed off the shelf or, or picked out of my own accord, but, um, because the, the, 
I guess the basic story of it doesn't necessarily have like a huge hook, like uh, Death on the Nile, which is the, a new movie that's coming out um, with uh, Kenneth Branagh playing the character, and and um, you know Murder on the Orient Express. These are movies that that uh, and stories of uh, that feature Poirot, uh, who's this private detective character in like um, you know really cool environments like they the murder is contained on a train and or uh you know they're out on a, a boat on the nile and um the murder of, of roger Ackroyd basically happens in like a small provincial town and it's not um it doesn't have that same hook going into it but uh without getting into too much of the the details because this is a short book and i would definitely recommend that people read this um holy hell man the the ending of this uh really sort of bowled me over so i I, you know a a lot of these stories end with poro um you know getting gathering all of the suspects together and and making this big proclamation about who did it and how he's figured out the the mystery and all that kind of stuff um this kind of has that but uh it it puts a little bit of a different spin on it so i um would definitely recommend this if you're if you're if you have read even just a couple of these books and are interested or, or maybe seen a couple of these movies, um, Murder on the Orange Express and, and the, uh, you know, the other Poro novels and, and series and adaptations and things like that, but have not read this story, uh, it is definitely worth your time. So that is The Murder, murder of Roger Ackroyd. Um, it, it's actually, it's weird because I was reading it and, you know, I've read enough of these to to think that I know, like, oh, this sort of seems like the point in Poirot's career where he's winding down. So maybe this is one of the last books that was written. It's actually one of the first ones that was written. So like he's already retired in this one. And um, it seems like, I don't know, it, it, it surprised me to find out where this falls on the timeline of the whole uh, Agatha Christie verse, I guess, if you want to call it that. But um, the murder of Roger Ackroyd is very, very good. So check that out if you are interested. All right, let's get into what we've been watching. Chris and HT, you both watched uh, Antebellum. Uh, HT, we haven't heard from you yet. Why don't you start? What did you think about Antebellum? I have to say I was disappointed by Antebellum. I was really anticipating this movie just because it looked like a really innovative horror movie in the vein of Get Out and the, the movie itself um, very proudly proclaims it's from the producers of Get Out, um, but it's nowhere near the level of ingenuity and social commentary, like social um, perception that Get Out has. Um, I can't, I won't go in too much into it because there is a big twist, but I will say that the twist was pretty disappointing for me. And um, I think that in the end, the story felt very stretched out. It felt sort of like a Twilight Zone episode um, and kind of a middling one at that, um, that was stretched out over two hours. And um, it focused so much on the the brutality of slavery and um, that sort of gratuitous miserable misery that comes with sort of a lot of slave um, slavery movies that it almost felt like instead of subverting it as I think it int- intended to, it felt like it was kind of perpetuating and adding to just that um, mm. genre. So I think that it was it was well intentioned, but I feel like it was it kind of felt like a college <laughs> a college thesis that was really like a really great premise, but like the that had a was sorely lacking in execution. Do you think that the length of it is is part of the problem? Like, would it have worked better with the same story just condensed down into a short film? Or was it like overall the, the narrative as it existed uh, was just not 
like up to snuff? I think both. <laughs> I think that if it was shorter, then it would have been. I just I think that it's it's a it's misplaced to begin with. Like the premise, the twist itself, it's interesting, but it's not as smart as it thinks it is. Mm. So I I just um yeah I was disappointed by it, and um, I think it, it's interesting because there's been more conversations about it, and um, it's been people are more. Uh, negative on it than I was. I was just kind of a little deflated by it, but they have a lot of good um, things at the conversation. I'm thinking specifically of a Polygon review who, which um, delved into the imagery and the iconography that this movie uses and how that kind of feeds into that uh, miserable, miserablest sort of storytelling. So um, I recommend that, but I also recommend Chris's review, which is great. All right, Chris, what did you think about it? Wow, smooth save there. Thank you. Um, I I liked it a little bit more than most people, it seems. Um, uh, But yeah, I don't think it's that great. I was very disappointed with it overall because, again, without giving away spoilers, the trailers, the way the trailers are selling it is not what this movie is it's it's very 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 deceptive marketing and you know to all to some regards all marketing is deceptive but this is like a, more deceptive than i was expecting and um i also like figured out the twist like five minutes into the movie which kind of bugged me too so i don't know i don't think it's as bad as some people are saying but it's also not great it could have been a lot better or if it had been like a new Twilight Zone episode or a Black Mirror episode or something like that. I think that would have worked a lot better. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's got some cool visuals. <laughs> I'm trying to think of positive things to say. Yeah, you know, the last image of Janelle Monet is really, really striking. Yeah, like I kind of want these directors uh, to make something else now because I do think they have real talent. I just think it's not on display here, so... It's definitely a letdown. Well, I remember when uh, Drive came out, a woman sued or tried to sue the studio because of uh, some sort of false marketing claim because it was marketed like a Fast and Furious movie. So, Chris, I look forward to uh, your court case against Antebellum yes. making its way through uh, on, on false marketing charges. That's right. You'll be hearing from me, Lionsgate. <laughs> All right, Jacob, what have you been watching? Uh, I had last week off, so I slept a lot and watched a little. Uh, a few things that people have already talked about on this podcast, so I won't dwell for too long. I watched all of Love on the Spectrum, the new Netflix series about people on the autism spectrum dating and trying to find romance. Uh, it made my skin crawl. I heard the premise, but the execution is so empathetic, warm, and human. It's the kind of project that feels like it exists to put good into the world. Uh, I found the entire thing charming and eye-opening. That's a love in the spectrum. We've talked about it before. It's really good. You should absolutely watch it. Uh, I watched the first episode of High Score, which Brad reviewed for the site. So I won't go for too long on this. It's a video game documentary series on Netflix uh, about the history of video games. In broad strokes, I didn't learn anything. The basic huge points are things I think are pretty common knowledge amongst people who are familiar with the history of video games. But it's the details that matter and the details that really stand out. And you're starting to see that the people who were making games in the 70s are starting to get old. And and, and having them on camera sharing their stories is a really important, remarkable thing. I mean, how many lost filmmakers, you know, how many lost films that we do we bemoan, you know, 100 years later. And here is a series that's doing its best to have these stories, you know, 
put in front of a large audience while they're still around. And that to me is an important uh, effort. Uh, so that is high score on Netflix. I enjoy it quite a bit. I rented Sputnik, the Russian horror film that uh, premiered on VOD recently. I enjoyed this a great deal. This is a uh, really grim, slow-burning sci-fi horror film about a cosmonaut in the 80s who uh, lands after a mission and brings back an alien life form. And I'll leave it at that. It is nasty and gross and has shades of the thing and alien. Did anybody else here see Sputnik? I don't know if we talked about this last week or not while I was gone. We did not cover it, but this seems like something Chris might have watched. Chris, I haven't seen it yet. I've, I've oh. heard good things. I just have not seen it yet. This is an exceptionally good sci-fi horror film. It, it, it manages to evoke a lot of, of the famous films similar to it without feeling like a ripoff ever. It feels it feels very unique in a lot of ways. Uh, that's Sputnik. Uh, I think it's available for, for a $6 rental on Amazon where I watched it. It's very good. Very gross. Very scary. I enjoyed it a lot. I watched Class Action Park. Did you guys talk about this last week? I feel like I'm a broken yes. record here. Uh, yeah, we did. Okay. I mostly like this film. I have some issues with it. I'm assuming that ones that were addressed last week about how it tries to find nice things to say about Gene Mulvihill, a roaring son of a bitch who should burn in hell. <laughs> uh, but the stories and footage of this insane, dangerous amusement park are mind-boggling. I enjoyed that quite a bit. And... The final point it makes, without spoiling anything, that maybe the wild and carefree childhood that we're nostalgic about, the one that gets highlighted in Stranger Things and It, that 80s kids on bike thing, maybe it actually sucked, is kind of the point this movie makes. It's one that I've been mulling over a lot uh, since I watched it, and I found it to be a powerful thought to have. Uh, that is Class Action Park on HBO Max. Guys, I watched Cats. <laughs> oh, I, no. I, I uh, poured the strongest vodka drink i've made in quite some time and i watched cats here's my here's my feeling on cats cats is not the worst film i've ever seen but if put on debate stage and told argue that cats is the worst film ever made i could make that argument because nothing here works it is a it is a misfired and not misfires it is a fiasco it is such a bad idea on every level nothing here works uh I could talk about cats for a long time. People already have. I'm six months late to the conversation, maybe even eight months at this point. Uh, but don't spend money on cats. Wait till streaming for free. Don't be me. And if you do you watch might... it, okay, was, sorry. was it HD? <laughs> you might say it's a meowsco. Oh my goodness, yes. Oh, uh, is that Louis A. Safian? It. Is Louis A. Safian in this room? Um, <laughs> yes, I've returned from the dead. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, uh, cats is as bad as you heard, maybe worse. The only re- I, I feel like anybody who says it's the worst film ever needs to go watch some more actual trash as opposed to a you know a big budget blockbuster fiasco. But goodness gracious, it is absolutely a mess. Uh, that's cats. You should not pay money for it. Yeah, that's the thing, Jacob. Like you know, anytime people are, say that about um, that something is the worst movie they've ever seen, I'm always like, you gotta you know go watch like a bunch of low budget crap like i think the worst mo- one of the worst movies i've ever seen and i don't even know if this is the one but it's the one that that always comes up in this example is a movie called vampires on bikini beach which like is just um w- way worse than even that title makes it seem uh and it's you know super low budget and and just um yeah like a, a fiasco from the start like like uh you know <laughs> Just it never should have happened. Um, but something like cats, I feel like is it it seen I have not seen cats, so I'll just say that. But uh it seems like it might be 
on a different level of bad because of the amount of the sheer amount of, of talent and money that were uh, wasted on, on something like that. Like that sort of puts it in a different category. It's, it may not be like the worst thing you've ever seen, but it may be like one of the worst wastes of money that you've ever seen. Does that, does that seem accurate? That's accurate. It, it, it's an absolute fascination to watch it. I feel that the difference between a bad movie of this budget is that there's usually something to talk about. You can usually look at a movie of this scale and, and like have fun dissecting what went wrong here. Whereas a $1,500 uh, horror movie at some schmuck made in his backyard and uploaded to Amazon that you watch for five minutes uh, one night and go, why am I watching this to turn it off? That's the actual worst movie ever made. <laughs> that's, that's the actual one. Uh, right. So that, that's my opinion on that matter. But all right, what else have you been watching, Jake? A good movie. I watched Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey for the first time. I have not watched a new one. I've not watched Face the Music. I, I will soon. But I watched Excellent Adventure for the first time earlier this year. I watched Bogus Journey now. I prefer Bogus Journey. It's definitely a weirder movie. It's wilder. It's stranger. It's more comfortable in its skin. It's aged <laughs> in certain ways that uh, I wish could be smoothed out by time. But you know, it's a product of when it was made. I guess my whole thing with these movies, maybe because I didn't watch them when I was a kid, I smiled a lot through Excellent uh, Adventure and Bogus Journey. I never laughed out loud, but I appreciate their good-hearted, goofy vibe, and I'm looking forward to seeing the new one, uh, which we'll talk about momentarily. And finally, I rewatched The Mask. It's on Hulu, and I hit play on it almost as a joke, thinking, ha-ha, The Mask. I watched it when I was younger. I'll watch five minutes and turn it off. I ended up watching all of The Mask, and... It is the second best of Jim Carrey's 1994 movies. It is not as good as Dumb and Dumber, uh, but is loads better than Ace Ventura, which is a heaping pile of homophobic trash. Uh, the Mask holds up. It is a, it is it works really well with what Jim Carrey could do at that time. The special effects are really clever and fun, especially when they're practical, and it is such a interesting time capsule of what was a huge hit in 1994. And aside from any nostalgia I had for it, I was pleasantly surprised by how funny and weird and goofy it was and how well it showcased Jim Carrey's abilities. How do we feel about the mask, guys? Are we pro-mask on this podcast? <laughs> Such an odd question. How do we feel about the mask? Um, I don't remember. I haven't seen it in so long. I'm, I'm very pro the mask. Uh, I loved it as a kid growing up. I had it on VHS. I watched it all the time. Uh, I definitely... Uh, mimicked and did impersonations of Jim Carrey in that movie just because he's a, a, a living cartoon there. And yeah, it's it's just weird, wacky sort of cartoon fun. It's it's like a live action Looney Tunes movie. And uh, man, Cameron Diaz is so like sexy in this movie. Like I, I I firmly remember like as a kid when growing up like realizing oh this is this is what it, what it is to be attracted to girls like, apparently. <laughs> and it's just. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's it's just a lot of fun. It's it's just it's it's totally weird, and I, I still enjoy it to this day. Yeah, I'm fully pro mask as well. I feel like this. Yeah, I haven't seen it in a long time, but I still have most of it memorized. It's one of those that I just watched so much as a kid that um, you know I'm just like playing through it in my mind right now, and I feel like it does hold up pretty well. I think uh, you know, like you guys have said, that, that live action cartoon aspect is so interesting because this movie was made in the mid '90s, like way before the comic book boom i mean there had been a couple you know tim burton's batman movies and the richard donner superman and stuff like that but um it, I, I feel like this sort of paved the way for the the cgi heavy um you know comic book movie like based on a comic kind of uh 
whole thing that Hollywood has turned into over the past 20 years. But it was it was like ahead of the curve in that regard. I've always wondered what it would what a adaptation of the actual Dark Horse comic would like. I have not read it, uh, but in a, an extremely violent comic where you put on the mask, you're straight up murdering people. You're still doing Tex Avery cartoon stuff, but like there's, there's a body count. It's like an incredibly violent horror comic that uses cartoon language. And when they, when they cast Jim Carrey, they pivoted to PG-13. Uh, so uh, I want the alternate universe where that one got made so we can check it out because I'm very curious what that would have felt like. Jake, right. are you, you... pro-mask? Oh, uh, uh, I'm me, right. Okay, sorry. Yes. <laughs> Things are happening. Um, it's been a long time since I've seen it. I remember watching it when I was really young. And I think I remember being very scared by it. <laughs> Jim, well, it was Jim Carrey's performance was just so manic and crazy that I just remember being very frightened. So that's all I really remember of it. But I feel like if I watched it now, I'd be pro-mask, but uh, I can't say for sure. Chris, you were going to say something. I was going to say, Jacob, are you going to watch Son of the Mask now to be a completist? <laughs> I have a vivid memory of that trailer in theaters back when it first arrived. I was a younger man uh, back then, but it aged me 10 years. I will not be watching Son of the Mask. <laughs> um, I remember like the first time I saw the mask. I'm trying to look up the actor's name. Um, I, I remember uh, HT being a little frightened, too, of what the hell is the guy, the guy who plays the villain? And his name is... Alan anybody? Cumming? <laughs> no, no. Oh, that's the sequel. <laughs> oh. No, in, in <laughs> I was the so actual mask. At first. I, was, uh, I, I, I got sidetracked. Sorry, Peter Green. The um, <laughs> I, I think, uh, yeah, Dorian Tyrell. When he puts on the mask at the end, I was like genuinely uh, unnerved by that because he, you know, it, the whole thing is about like uh, unleashing your id and he's like a straight up villain and Stanley Ipkiss is like more of a goofball who who um you know gets into like some questionable situations but this guy when he turned on the mask he turned into like a full-blown movie monster and i remember that being you know quite affected by that the first time i saw it so uh ht since you're like a few years younger than uh us i think that <laughs> that tracks anyway so uh okay let's move on to who else? who's next chris what have you been watching uh i watched bill and ted face the music which some people talked about last uh water cooler and it is a nice movie. Um, I, I do think it has some problems. Um, it, it feels very chopped up, if that's the word I can use for it. Like, there's this subplot involving Bill and Ted's wives, the princesses, that just feels so, like, forgotten about. Like, they introduce it, and then they don't really... They just bring it back at the end. They're like, oh, yeah, by the way. And it, it just feels like there was probably more to that that they just cut out for whatever reason. And... Uh, it also feels very rushed at times. Like they're just like rushing to get to the end, but it's also just such a nice warm movie that I'm just willing to overlook all of those problems. Like, like as I was watching it, I was like, eh, I noticed this is a problem and that's a problem. But I also just like, yeah, I don't care. Cause it's so, it's just a nice movie and we need nice things right now. And seeing like Keanu Reeves back in this, this goofball mode, which is something he hasn't done in a while. was just, charming and uh yeah so i i dug it i you know it's not perfect but none of the bill and ted movies are perfect so i you know i can't complain that much awesome so that is bill and ted face the music uh i recently rewatched master and commander the far side of the world which was uh, co-written and directed by peter weir this movie came out in 2003 and stars russell crowe and uh, paul bettany and um Man, I, I remember I'd only seen this one time, like probably three or four years after it came out. And uh, I remember really liking it. And um, my wife actually was was like, I want 
I'm looking for a dad movie. We're like looking for something to watch. And she was like, I want something that's like a, a classic dad movie. And she had never seen this one. And I was like, oh, this, this fits the bill for sure. Um, but man, this movie is so great. It opens up with this really wonderful piece of text that just says, April 1805, Napoleon is, a ma- is master of Europe. Only the British fleet stands before him. Oceans are now battlefields. And I'm like, hell yes, get me going on this movie. <laughs> like, I want to see this. Um, so I don't know if you guys have seen Master and Commander, but this movie, I, I think, absolutely rules. It's this really wonderful cat and mouse adventure story where Russell Crowe plays uh, a captain of a ship who is trying to uh, track down, capture, or destroy uh, one of Napoleon's um, ships in in the French army, and or the Navy, rather. And um, I think this is my favorite Russell Crowe performance of his entire career. Um you know, he, he's been in a lot of great stuff, but I, and, and given some like really iconic performances, but this movie, which, you know, performed okay at the box office, but not enough to generate the sequels that they were clearly hoping for. Um, this one seems to encompass everything that I like about Russell Crowe as a performer. Like it has his charisma and his humor and he's so charming in it. And, and he's, um, you know, a brilliant tactical mind and he's a, a natural leader and, uh, he's also sensitive at certain times and he plays a violin and, and he, you know, is able to project strength, but also this um, sort of winking and, and like uh, gleam in his eye intelligence that um, it just feels like this uses his his uh, star persona in, in the best way that I've seen any other movie use him. So uh, are we a pro master and commander podcast? It's, I guess is it's the, the best movie about naval combat or naval exploration ever made. Yeah, I, awesome. I I just included this in my most recent uh, streaming column. It's so, I think it's like one of the best movies of the, the like the 21st century. It's so fucking good. And in like a sane world, it would have been like a huge blockbuster and we would have had 20 more of these movies because there's like a million books in the series and they would have all been turned into a movie at least, and they'd be great. We'd have the Master and Commander Cinematic Universe. I want that world. Can I go to I that know. world? Yeah, I I just wrote about it in my uh, quarantine stream column. And like, look at Russell Crowe's five movie run from the year 1999 to 2003. This is what he made in in order. The Insider, Gladiator, Proof of Life, A Beautiful Mind, and Master and Commander. That is like a pretty impressive run. And then if you look at the stuff that he's made, you know, since then in his career, it's been very, very spotty. Movies like The Next Three Days and Broken City and like Unhinged, which just came out. Um, so I just, I'm right there with your, you, Chris, I, I really wish that we lived, we lived in that parallel universe where, you know, he was busy making master and commander sequels too busy making those to actually appear in some of the crap that he's been in, uh, you know, in, in the past 15 years or whatever, but, uh, alas, anyway, uh, master and commander, the far side of the world is terrific. It's on Hulu right now. I would definitely recommend checking that out. Um, and then also, what else? Uh, oh, the third episode of Lovecraft Country, which is on HBO and HBO Max. Um, Jacob, you mentioned this in our Slack that you really, really love this episode. I also love this episode. I put this on, you know, on our doc to discuss today because mostly I just wanted to hear you talk about it because you mentioned multiple times like this episode is really, really great, and it's basically like a. Um, like a a haunted house story in the middle of, uh, or not in the middle, I guess it's still the beginning of the season. It's only the third episode of the show. Um, But I I really love the pilot. We talked about that on the podcast. Um, I thought the second episode was like a little iffier, but still, uh, still good, but like 
a, a drop down in quality. And then this one I thought launched right back up. I thought this was uh, an excellent hour of television and um, a really, really compelling, like heady, um, scary, uh, just like everything I want from the show. So Jacob, I want to like open the floor to you and, and let you, uh, you know, heap some praise on this episode. Cause I know you really uh, were affected by it. Yeah. It is a self-contained story. It is a people move into a haunted house, bad stuff happens story that manages to be its own complete thing, beginning, middle and end while furthering the storylines of the first two episodes while introducing more characters while deepening the mystery while completing its own mystery. It is a ideal piece of a television can be. It does not feel like a piece of a movie chopped up. It feels like it was thought up as an episode of television and then worked into a larger season, which is something that's increasingly rare these days. And beyond that structure stuff, the fact that the show is just bowling forward. It has no regard for taking its time. It doesn't want you to wait for big reveals. It's giving big reveals constantly, continuously. It values your time and, 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 and money and says, each time you sit down to watch Lovecraft Country, there are no filler episodes. This is in your face constantly, and like it or not, and goodness gracious do I love it. And on top of that, the horror elements are just spectacular. The haunted house scenes here are incredibly scary. There are some ghost designs that are really upsetting for a number of ways I won't spoil. And the way it interweaves the haunted house story as an allegory for a group of black men and women moving into a white suburban neighborhood and not feeling wanted by both the house itself and by their neighbors is just uh, this chef's kiss for everything Lovecraft Country is done so well in three episodes. Uh, this show is just, I, I am pumped by this show. I'm excited. Uh, it is giving me a, a jolt of get out of <laughs> every single week. I feel like uh, just the, a, a genre show with its pulse on what matters and goodness yeah. uh, chris you've seen more because if you get the screen screen episodes does it get better than this or is this a highlight of what you've seen uh, i don't want to spoil the party here but next week's episode or i guess this week's episode is the only one i didn't like so uh, <laughs> you're gonna you're you might i mean you might be different than me you you might like it but uh the episodes i saw i you know as a whole i love them but the episode that comes after this this episode, episode three, is a bit of a, a a misstep in my my opinion. But then it gets right back up again. So, man, what a roller coaster of a yeah, show! Yeah, it's a little uneven, I guess you could say, because I mean, I didn't dislike the second episode like Ben did, but it it does it does have these like peaks and valleys. But overall, it, it's definitely, I mean, it's it's a great show overall. But I do think next week's episode stumbles a bit. So. Uh, maybe, maybe hedge your bets, I guess, but you might end up liking it more than me, but who knows? But yeah, I, I can't, you know, heap enough praise on the show as a whole. It's definitely a good show. All right. So that's Lovecraft Country. It is available on HBO Max. HT, what have you been watching? I have watched Mulan, the new live action remake of the 1998 animated classic directed by, now directed by Nikki Car Caro. And, um, it's good. It's um, it's a movie that definitely uh, justifies its existence and it feels refreshing after the string of shot-for-shot shot remakes that we've had from Disney live-action remakes. But it lacks the, the energy of the animated film that made it so watchable and it feels like it's just walking on eggshells the entire time to try to balance the... Um, appealing appeal to Chinese audiences. I've spoken about this before in my reporting of Mulan in general, but it definitely feels like that is 
woven into both the subtext and the text of the film. And um, it's really visually impressive. It's so gorgeous. And Nikki Caro's um, battle scenes in particular uh, feel so lush and um, stunning. Um, But the script and the film itself feels sort of cobbled together as if it was a movie made by committee. And um, that's not it's not particularly like terrible. It's not a particularly terrible film either. I liked it more than I disliked it. But um, I would I came away from it just sort of not overwhelmed, not underwhelmed, but just kind of whelmed. <laughs> whelmed. All right. Uh, do you know when that drops on Disney Plus? It's soon, right? Like maybe tomorrow? Yes, it? it does drop soon on Disney Plus. And I do know the date, um, which it, I would it say. Is, it is tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're not looking it up at all. Uh, okay. What else have you been watching, HD? Um, I also watched The Philadelphia Story on HBO Max. Uh, not HBO Max. Yeah, well, actually, it is HBO Max. Sorry. I was looking up dates and I forgot about things. Anyways, <laughs> I watched The Philadelphia Story on HBO Max. It stars Katherine Hepburn, Cary Grant, and James Stewart. And this was a, a movie that I had long wanted to see as part of just my – exploration of screwball comedies i'm a big fan of screwball comedies in general and this uh trio this star power um combination i just could not resist and i'd seen actually bits and pieces of it on tv before but never all the way through and um i was a little bit surprised by how mean it kind of was so the premise of the philadelphia story is that um uh katherine hepburn plays a Philadelphia socialite named Tracy Lord, who is a a divorcee. Her ex-husband is Cary Grant's character, Dexter, and she's about to marry this um, dull, cardboard, uh, nouveau riche type of um, self-made man. Um, And her wedding is supposed to be the event of of the season, but it is, of course, crashed by a couple of reporters, one of which is James Stewart. And... um, Thus, it it unfolds into a comedy of errors, which is quite fun and silly and full of those kind of screwball hijinks that you expect. But the movie spends the majority of its runtime sort of cutting Catherine Hepburn down to size. All of the characters, including her romantic interests, um, often just kind of levy a bunch of verbal abuses and insults and cruel jabs her way. And I was reading the history of this, and it's quite interesting because this is the movie that um, was uh, sort of the comeback for Katherine Hepburn after she was labeled box office poison. And um, she was a major part in bringing the Philadelphia story first to Broadway, which um, she starred in, and the part was written for her as well. And she also uh, had major creative control in bringing it to the big screen. And um, it was a film that, in the context culturally, was a way of sort of endearing her to audiences that had basically written her off as haughty and too snooty. And um, thus seeing her character cut down to size like that was um, made her more empathetic. But seeing it in this modern day context, it just plays very weird and kind of mean. And um, just Catherine Hepburn is so luminescent in this movie she's so she's so great and so dazzling um and it feels like Cary Grant and Jimmy and James Stewart are just kind of catching up with her um playing catch up and and they're also great but uh Catherine's just fantastic um but yeah it's just um it's a kind of a weird um like 
aspect of the film. And it feels like it sort of touches on the ideas of how women who supposedly have it all um, are really struggling under like the burdens of society and how people uh, really think lowly of them. But they're the moral lesson of it is that is non-existent essentially. It just kind of forgives all the people who insulted her and basically blamed her for their own indiscretion. So <laughs> it's just a, it's a little bit, it's a strange um, movie, especially like for being such a classic as it is. But overall, I did like it. I think the star power is just so great and the charisma and the chemistry is so sizzling that it's fun to watch. But there's just moments that really ring kind of strange and a little uncomfortable. So Interesting. that's the Philadelphia story on HBO Max. HD, I would recommend watching High Society. I don't know if you've ever seen that one, but it came out in 1956 and it's like a musical remake of Philadelphia Story and it has um, Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra and Grace Kelly in it. And it's I, I found it to be really interesting to watch Philadelphia Story and then High Society like pretty close, you know, not quite back to back, but close enough where I've remembered all of the ins and outs of Philadelphia Story. Um, so I'd recommend doing the same thing. If you can find it streaming somewhere, it's it's definitely a, an interesting sort of a comparison exercise. Mm -hmm. So is it different it, like um, thematically, I guess, from the Philadelphia Story? Like, would you say as mean, I guess, as, the, as I found the Philadelphia Story? Um, it's really pretty much the same story. As you were talking about it, I was like, huh, that that wasn't quite my memory of, of watching a Philadelphia Story because I remember there being scenes where she, I remember it being more about Catherine Hepburn, like being viewed, being put up on a pedestal and like just trying to be viewed as a, a human being and like everybody you know, even the people who, um, even her love interests, like not quite being able to really get there and, and being able to sort of like, you know, uh, achieve that of like actually just looking at her as a human, even though the movie sort of like paints it as they, they are doing that. Um, I don't know if that rings true no, to you at all. Yeah, but. I, I saw that aspect too, but for some reason, the parts where they um, try to bring her down is just stood out more to me. I think particularly of yeah. all of Dex's interactions with her and also that with her father who basically blames her for oh, his yeah. infidelity. I was like, what? Yeah, but that was I, the I, big I thing had, I remember. Like, the whole, like, like, goddess pedestal thing too. And I thought, that, I think that kind of plays into the overall what the movie was doing kind of sort of like for Catherine Hepburn as a, as a persona. Yeah, yeah. I think, I don't know, it, it'll, it should be interesting for you to watch High Society because like divorced from the Catherine Hepburn of it all, like to see how that story works and especially with the musical components and watching Crosby and Sinatra and, and Grace Kelly, who's also like luminescent. Um, it's, it should, I, I'll be interested to hear if you get a chance to check that out, what you think about that version in comparison. Mm, so, all right. Uh, all right. So yeah, Philadelphia Stories on HBO Max right now. And then HD, you've been watching something else too, right? Yeah. I've been watching the new season of Agretsuko. Season three just came out on Netflix. I've talked a little bit about Agretsuko before on this podcast, uh, none of which you guys listen to because I know that you guys tune out whenever I talk about anime. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but Agretsuko, um, if you guys recall, is the anime by Sanrio, the company behind Hello Kitty. And it kind of starts off as a weird, funny gimmick in which a cute um, red panda named Retsuko um, sorry, Retsuko, uh, is a, a sort of a worker drone and um, goes through her day sort of being yelled at and by her bosses and facing all sort of microaggressions at work. And uh, that had to do with working in uh, a corporate machine and being a woman in that workplace as, as well. And uh, she uh, gets uses... Uh, death metal karaoke as an outlet for all her frustrations and it's a fun gimmick especially in the first season 
Um, and somehow they've been they've managed to evolve that gimmick over uh, three seasons into in-depth stories about what it's like to be a millennial and work and um, deal with that sort of work-life balance and the intersections of technology and all that kind of stuff too and new um, sort of behaviors like for example season two dealt with sort of an incel type of character and season three uh, is a bit more removed from that workplace comedy that uh, the first and second season were about. It kind of follows the, um, um, uh, what's the word? The reliance on technology. And uh, it, it also kind of evolves into a type of uh, riff on Perfect Blue, the Satoshi Kon movie. I don't think any of you guys have seen that film, but it's a movie about an idol, a uh, a singing idol who gets um, stalked by a uh, mega fan and starts the reality and fiction starts to blur for her. And that that's more for surreal stuff doesn't play into Akatsuka season three, but it's about sort of those similar uh, relationships. And um, it's interesting. And uh, I, I really liked Akatsuka season three. I tore through it again in a day because every episode is only 15 minutes long. It's cute. It's funny. It's surprisingly insightful. I do think you guys would like it, but um, maybe uh, if uh, if you guys want to check it out, it's streaming on Netflix now, and that's Agretsuko. Awesome. Uh, Brad, what have you been watching? Um, <clears throat> well, I went to see Tenet, which was great, and then I also watched uh, Disney Plus's new series, Earth to Ned, which is a talk show um just a regular talk show except it's hosted by uh alien puppets from the jim henson company um ned is this commander sent from another planet to invade earth with his lieutenant cornelius um but instead of invading the planet they have become obsessed with earth's pop culture and they've decided to host a late night talk show where they talk to various uh celebrities from tv and movies and and whatnot to learn more about all of these things that they love so much and this show looked strange from the get-go and i just i wasn't really sure if it was gonna work it felt like maybe it was just a sneaky way for disney plus to like promote their their own shows and that kind of thing and there are there's a little bit of an aspect of that because there is an episode that is dedicated solely to star wars uh in the series of five episodes that were provided to me by uh disney plus in advance for review but this show is surprisingly delightfully quirky and funny it has the the kind of comedic spirit that i hoped would be in muppets now it has this kind of uh classic like family friendly comedic style that is uh silly enough that kids will enjoy but also satirical and clever enough that adults like it too um it just it has a great flow to it the chemistry between uh ned and cornelius as characters feels like it's ripped from a real late night talk show like they have the same kind of dynamic that like Conan O'Brien and Andy Richter would, or more perhaps a better comparison, Space Ghost and Zorak from Space Ghost Coast to Coast, because the show is very much uh, like that. And it has a little bit of um, Martin Short's Jiminy Glick from Primetime Glick in it too, because Ned is this, he's a very uh, energetic and flamboyant host, but he's not quite as uh, inappropriate or dim-witted as, as Jiminy Glick is, but he's just always super enthusiastic. And the way he interviews his guest is really funny too, because it's from the perspective of an alien who's like kind of trying to understand things that doesn't quite have a grasp on like comedy and musicals. And uh, it, it, what's even weirder about it too, is the assembly of guests isn't like a roster of people that kids would necessarily be interested in hearing from, which is what I was totally expecting from, 
you know, a show like this, but it has people like Reggie Watts from Comedy Bang Bang and the Late, late Show with James Corden, who's like the MVP guest. Uh, like the way he interacts with Ned is is perfect. Like he talks to him like he's a real person, like a real late night host. Uh, Eli Roth has so much fun as a guest on this show, and like the, he t- talks about horror movies, and he he gets so caught up in, in the fun of it all. Um, and it's just this surprisingly entertaining show that like I initially was adverse to and worried about because the first 10 minutes are a little rough. Um, even though the first guest is coincidentally enough, Andy Richter, he's hamming it up too much. And the conversations feel like they're far too scripted. And I was worried that, that the entire show was going to be like that. Um, but then uh, in the second half of that episode and then onward, the conversations with Ned and Cornelius start to feel much more organic and natural. And it's clear that the guests they have were comfortable and the, the writers and the crew figured out the kind of vibe that they wanted to strike and how well it worked. So I'm, I'm really happy to say that this is a show um, that is totally worth checking out. It's, it's probably the best original show that Disney plus has besides the Mandalorian um, that, I, that I've been like genuinely excited to like keep watching and, and was thoroughly entertained the whole way through. Huh. Do you know when that is released on? Yeah, Disney so Plus? it's uh, all the all of the first um, ten episodes are available starting tomorrow, September fourth. Okay. And one more question about it, like the hearing you describe it, it sort of sounds. I mean, it sounds gimmicky, right? Like the idea of an alien, uh, uh, like not understanding basic uh, Earth concepts and stuff. What what is the interview like? Like, are are the are the celebrity guests actually? talking about things that you as a viewer are interested in or is it mostly like gags and stuff and it's just sort of fun to see them play along with the it's whole a thing. mix of the two because unlike normal talk show appearances the guests that are on don't really have anything specific to promote um like like reggie watts isn't there to talk about late you know late uh, the late late show with james corden or, or anything like that um so they're they're there more so just to have these entertaining conversations where Ned interviews them about like what it is that they do because he wants an, a more of a thorough understanding of it. And so he asks some of these like kind of oddball questions that are that, that, that prompt interesting responses and like are engaging in a way that late night talk show interviews uh, usually aren't. But then they also have little, little extra things like they do play some games with them, but they're, they're funny bits too. Like um, one of the funnier ones is uh, Gillian Jacobs in the first episode, he has her, um, do impressions of other alien races from around the galaxy. And she has no idea what these alien races sound like. So she's just making it up on the spot. And so there's funny little gags uh, like that throughout, throughout the series too. It's just, it's, it's weird. It's quirky, but it's, it's so much fun. Okay. So that's earth to Ned. Uh, what else have you been watching? Uh, and then I watched a new documentary called Robin's wish, uh, which is, uh, about the final days of Robin Williams leading up to his tragic suicide. Um, it's a very heartbreaking and harrowing documentary. And what it mostly aims to do is set the record straight about uh, why Robin Williams committed suicide and what it was that really killed him. Because uh, in the wake of his death, there was a lot of speculation from uh, media outlets and tabloids and things like that about uh, depression getting the better of him again, uh, potentially reverting back to substance abuse, um, there was even some stuff about maybe financial problems, uh, and the documentary, you know, throws all this up and then immediately chucks it out the window. Uh, and it's actually um, what caused Robin Williams' demise is this uh, neurodegenerative disease called diffuse Lewy body syndrome, which is uh, or disorder rather, which is a form of dementia, um, and it really just kind of breaks down your 
brain and you kind of just like you you feel all these things that make you feel like you're not yourself depression and anxiety is part of it but it's not the core of what drives um the the deterioration of your brain it's just one of the many uh you know detriments or, or ailments that come from this disease that overall just starts kind of uh tearing down who you are basically and the documentary paints this portrait from people who are closest to him uh, it has the full support and involvement of susan schneider williams who is his widow uh neighbors who live next to them in their marin county home in california um some of his longtime best friends uh, and comedy collaborators uh people like sean levy the director of the night of the museum franchise who was one of the last people to work with him on a feature film uh david e kelly and uh John Montgomery, who are the executive producers of The Crazy Ones, his last big TV show. And they all talk about how in the last couple of years of his life, they noticed a change in him where he just didn't feel like himself. He was constantly concerned about um, his performance and that he was having trouble remembering his lines and he didn't have that confidence and quick wit that everyone knows defines Robin Williams. You know, whenever you would see him, he was just moving at lightning speed and coming up with jokes so fast that you could barely keep up. And everyone talk, you know, talks about how they, they noticed this, and but no one ever really felt like they could do anything about it because it's such a personal thing, and he was so vulnerable. And it was just, they could never really get a grasp of what was going on. And Robin Williams couldn't either because the, it, this went undiagnosed until after he had died. And they did an autopsy and figured it out. And this is apparently one of the worst cases medical professionals have seen of this uh, syndrome. And so it's, it's a really sad documentary. It provides closure for those who you know, were, were sad and wondered why he felt the need to commit suicide. Um, but one thing I will say, and it, because as, as good as the subject matter is and as intimate of a portrait this paints of Robin Williams, especially in his final days, there's some very amateur filmmaking here to the point where there's like very pointless B-roll, uh, some B-roll that tries to like literally represent what the people are saying in their interviews. There's very schlocky, like almost dramatization level representations of like uh hallucinations and paranoia when it's being talked about but all it is is footage that was shot of susan snyder williams like walking around the house that they've made like blurry or they've used weird angles almost like a very melodramatic reenactment from like rescue 911 or unsolved mysteries <laughs> and it was really distracting and it, it really frustrated me that such intimate and quality interviews and information about robin williams was in this movie that didn't have the production quality to match it. There, there are way too many aerial shots of Robin Williams's house for no reason whatsoever, just, just to fill visual gaps. And I was very frustrated, and it made me wish that this was something that was almost like an addendum to HBO's documentary, Robin Williams Come Inside My Mind, because that paints such a definitive portrait of who Robin Williams was, but it just doesn't have that complete final piece of what it is that drove him to commit suicide. And I wish that this could mm -hmm. somehow be combined with that, because if, if that were the case, it would be like the, the ultimate portrait of, of Robin Williams, um, who he was and, you know, and all that. So, but, you know, if you're a Robin Williams fan, I think that you'll, you'll enjoy watching this just to hear, you know, some of these stories from people who knew him best. Um, but, it, but it is very sad. So be prepared for that. Okay, and then finally, Brad, uh, you rewatched One Fine Day, which is really weird because I have not, you know, her, I, I've never seen this movie, but I have not even thought about it since, like, I saw a trailer for it in whenever, whatever year in the 90s that it came out. But I, I just heard somebody, I don't remember the podcast, but like maybe two weeks ago, somebody was like, I rewatched One Fine Day, and that is a mean movie. So I'm wondering if you thought it was a mean movie um, as well. What why did they think, think it was a mean movie? 
I don't recall. I'm, I'm, I, I shouldn't, maybe shouldn't even have brought it up, but uh, I, don't, I don't have any more details think, than that. I just remember being like, huh, I have not thought about that movie in a long, I long think time. that I, I can understand maybe what the perspective is. Um, but so, so yeah, well, we, I watched One Fine Day with my girlfriend because she was in the mood for um, a kind of romantic comedy and she hadn't seen that in a long time. And we decided to watch it. Uh, for those who don't know, One Fine Day is uh, like a mid 90s romantic comedy uh, with George Clooney and Michelle Pfeiffer. Uh, each of them plays these uh, single parents uh, who of uh, a kid. George Clooney has a daughter. Michelle Pfeiffer has a son. Um, and they're, they have this one super busy day where they're trying to get their kids to a field trip and they miss it. And they have all these things scheduled. And so they agree to help each other out by taking care of each other's kids throughout the day. And there are these, you know, mishaps that happen. They're, they're not uh, like over the top goofy mishaps that happen in, you know, stupid family friendly movies. Um, but it's uh, it's a very charming movie. But I guess maybe if there's the mean spirit tied to it, it's that George Clooney and Michelle Pfeiffer aren't really all that nice to each other throughout pretty much the entirety of the movie. But they come to have this sort of spark because they come to I guess I guess respect and recognize that they they do kind of like like each other. Um, yeah, I mean it's uh, <laughs> I'm I'm thinking about it now through the idea of like whether or not it it is a a, a mean movie. But but yeah, I, it's it's one that I I really like. Um, both Clooney and Pfeiffer are uh fantastic in it and um as well are the kids it's it's may whitman from independence day who is now a grown up grown up actress and alex d Linz from uh home alone 3 who um is a funny little little kid but his character is a, a tyrannical child <laughs> if there ever was one he totally keeps <laughs> fucking up michelle pfeiffer's day um but yeah it's just it's just this really charming movie that just like uh, you know, jumps around all over New York City and just the, the dynamic of, of these two as very bitter um, rivals who come to spark a romance with each other uh, is really fun. And it's the kind of romantic comedy that studios don't really make anymore. Um, and even my girlfriend, she's like, why don't they make movies like this anymore? And I was like, Oof, let me tell you. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's I, I, I Netflix has kind of picked up the banner for uh, movies like this in, in recent years. But I, I do wish that they that studios were still able to round up you know, big stars like this to do these kinds of romantic comedies. Because when you get that kind of talent attached to stories like this, it's, it elevates them to a way that doesn't make them feel so hokey. Yeah, for sure. All right. So uh, let's move into what we've been eating. Brad, what oh, have you been still eating? Me. Um, I got my hands on uh, the Mandalorian Star Wars cereal that's out there. I think Peter might have mentioned this by chance on, on the podcast at some point, or maybe it was just in our Slack. Uh, but I finally found... Does it taste visually impressive, but overall pretty disappointing? <laughs> I actually, funnily enough, I think that visually it's disappointing, but the taste is better. <laughs> um, it's uh, it's pretty simple cereal. Like either it's these little corn puff balls, and it has uh, marshmallows in it, shaped like Baby Yoda and other things from the Mandalorian. And it's um, basically it, it's not just plain corn puff cereal. Thankfully, it's actually like uh, it tastes like tricks or berry kicks. Um, which is a nice change of pace because usually these these kinds of branded cereals take like the cheapest malt meal cereal and throw some marshmallows in and like here kids suck it up um but this is it's it's actually pretty good because i'm somebody who enjoys you know tricks and berry kicks so this with uh the marshmallows it's it's a fun breakfast cereal take take you back to those nice saturday morning cartoon days um and then i also tried these new uh ritz cheese crispers um which are they kind of reminded me of better cheddars, if you guys remember those at all. Um, but instead of being just the plain, like, cheesy, round, salted cracker, it has a, a considerable amount of, like, this cheese dust on it. Um, and it's, uh, they're they're pretty good. They're um, not quite like flavored Cheez-Its. Um, they're a little bit 
I guess you would say saltier. Um, but yeah, pretty good. There you go. All right. Uh, so let's move into what we've been playing. I have been playing a podcast episode called The Secret History of Hollywood. I've talked about this before. Uh, they just recently launched a new season devoted to Cary Grant. And the first part, the first episode is 12 hours and 40 minutes long. <laughs> so uh, it is the longest podcast episode that I've ever listened to. It is uh, just incredible storytelling all around. I've, I've taught, you know, I've, I've sung the praises, sang the praises. Uh, I've praised to the show, uh, this podcast to the high heavens before. And I, I still believe it's like one of the best um, you know, sort of like narrative entertainment experiences that I've ever had is listening to this show. So uh, I would recommend jumping on board right now. I, I, the last series, I believe, lasted like two and a half years. Um, it was spread out, you know, episodes come sort of infrequently, but when they do come, they come with a bang. Um, so I have no idea how long this Cary Grant series is going to last. Uh, but this first episode, 12 hours and 40 minutes, I mean, it took several days of pausing at, at, you know, certain moments and stuff to, uh, to finish this episode, but man, it is, it is so worth it. So, um, I just, I've talked about this before. If people who have listened to it have not been super interested in like the works of, uh, Val Luton, which is what the, the previous series covered, then maybe Cary Grant will be, um, more to your liking and, uh, HTA, especially, you know, I know you like Cary Grant and you've watched a bunch of his stuff and you just talked about the Philadelphia story, which he was in. So, uh, I would recommend this, this to you, especially, um, if you're looking for something <laughs> very, very long, but very, very, very good. So that is, uh, the secret history of Hollywood. Jacob, what have you been playing? Well, ever since HT started talking about, her new RPG group playing Call of Cthulhu, uh, or planning to, I've been itching. I'm like, man, I want to play Call of Cthulhu. Uh, and I'm, I've been, since I'm currently running two other groups who are not playing Call of Cthulhu, I didn't have the energy to ask them for another game. So I'm, I broke out a solo adventure called Alone Against the Flames, which is literally you get a Call of Cthulhu character sheet, you fill it out, and there's even a tutorial version that helps you learn the game as you play solo. And essentially a choose-your-own-adventure game where uh, instead of working with a game master, the book is you know dictating you instructions, giving you information, and you try to survive. And the basic premise is that you are playing a traveler who's stranded in a small New England town and realizes that there are nefarious things uh, out to get you in the town. And I won't say more than that. I will say that I played for about an hour, and my character died horribly. And I realized like there were so many things that did not happen like there were so many points in the game where it said if you've learned this you can go here and i said oh that's i did not learn that so i'm eager to try different character build go back in and see if the dice are more on my side because it was a good job of balancing decision making like giving you a, a, a series of choices and taking you places with dice rolling like you know someone's attacking you roll your strength you know or you know maybe he's lying roll psychology to see if you can you know determine if he's uh, not telling the truth and while I miss the conversation of a actual role-playing game where, you know, for example, the way I died in the game, I feel like I could have pitched <laughs> to the GM to say, hey, uh, I'm going to try a different way to escape. And, you know, you could have tried something else. And I could have not died. Uh, it's the, the book is more unforgiving. Uh, but Alone Against the Flames is a $10 thing. And it helps you learn the game if you haven't played it before. While also being just a really interesting evolution of the choose your own adventure game but you know elevated into a full-on rpg and i had a great time and scratched that itch and i've been i've been reading through my rule books uh, jealous of hg actually having a group of me able to play uh, but also i did run a my first ever uh two-player game where it was just me and one other person on zoom 
Uh, Brad, uh, you were there for the season finale, I'm calling it, of our Blades in the Dark game, where things got really hectic and chaotic, uh, and how they ended, not necessarily definitively, but sealed things off pretty well for, like, our month-long break, correct? Yeah, it was, some pretty crazy shit went down, and in, like, a, a traditional TV season, like, finale um, fashion, there was, like, big uh, events and, like, a cliffhanger and a setup for what's to come, and, yeah, it was it was really fun. Yeah, but one of our players couldn't make it. She had work, and there's no way around it. And I didn't want to push off the game because other people had other commitments, and I didn't want her to feel left out. Uh, so when those players got in the session, her character was vanished, and no one knew where she went. So her and I jumped on Zoom a few days later, and we role-played where she went and what she did. And she had her own simultaneous season finale, where she went on her own adventure and learned all kinds of great information that the rest of the crew does not know. So when they re- meet back up, when we resume the game, they'll have to catch each other up on, you know, oh, here's what we did while you were gone, and here's what I did while I was missing. Uh, and it ended up being really fun. It ended up being like a straightforward conversation because so much of role-playing is knowing when I'm going to wait my turn, I'm going to be generous to the other players, I'm going to jump in when it's time, but also recognize that, you know, it's a group effort. When, when, with a one-player game like this, or a two-player game, it became a conversation where they were the sole star of the show, and this player, I, I, I adore her because she takes left turn, left field choices all the time. Like certain players, if I say there's a, there's a guy with a sword guarding the room, he'll say, "Well, I'll sword fight him." This player will think of the exact opposite thing <laughs> that you could possibly imagine, uh, which kept me on my toes constantly. And uh, what she learned and how she learned it and where she ended up ended up being so bizarre and crazy and outrageous that I cannot wait for her to share her story for the rest of the group. So if you're uh, running games and people can't make it, you consider spinning off and doing them a solo adventure so they can uh, come back and have things to share as opposed to, you know, being left out and feeling left out. That's very cool. I love that idea. It's sort of like a that person got their own, like, you know, spinoff movie. And then uh, for the, the, the big sequel, um, everybody will be back together again. That's awesome. Uh, Ishii, you've, you've also been doing some uh, role playing, right? Yeah. So I talked to several weeks back about my group working our way towards a Call of Cthulhu uh, RPG game. And we finally did it. We did a one shot of the Lightless Beacon. And um, this is a uh, game where you are a group of people who um, in 1926, uh, Massachusetts, who are um, stranded on a um, an island where the lighthouse has the light in the lighthouse has gone out and um, mysterious creatures may or may not be rustling in the bushes and the trees around you. And uh, I played the antique stealer that may or may not have a less than honest past. And I really enjoyed this uh, doing this game. It was a very simple sort of one shot we did in uh, just like a five hour session. And um, I especially enjoyed the investigative aspect of this game. And because um, before we just did Pokemon, which was very um, by the number sort of uh, uh, what's the word for the ro- the fighting type? It's rotation. I can't remember the name, but yes, the, the sort of rotating fighting style. Turn and based. in this a turn, yes, turn based. I know words. Um, <laughs> anyways, um, I really enjoyed doing more of the investigative mystery solving part of this game. And um, just going through it like you are trapped in a survival horror movie, which really it kind of plays out as. And um, it was it was fun. Like my my DM had some great twists um, that she sometimes I think she 
went by the book, but I think she did her own spins on it too. And uh, we also had like a good cliffhanger halfway through and um, it was a, uh, it was really exciting. And I, um, I really love the, the call of Cthulhu. This is kind of my first proper RPG with, with uh, the Lovecraft uh, mythos. We did, um, we did a board game, this group and I a while ago with the Eldritch Horror. And I enjoyed it so much that I wanted to dive more into the Lovecraftian mythos and the Cthulhu mythos in general, but I never really got around to it. And doing this game, this one shot, um, made me really intrigued and excited about this world again. So I, I hope we get to do another um, one shot from the Call of Cthulhu games. And uh, I recommend The Lightless Beacon if you do want to get into uh, RPGs, although it did we did have to like uh, kind of get into the groove of it with a previous one so i i think um i'm sure there's i'm sure there are ways for people who have never played rpgs before it was just uh it did, we just happened to be able to do it to get this together so it, it was a lot of fun though hd i have a i have all kinds of questions for you but i'll, I'll keep it i'll keep it to a minimum because people don't want to hear some rpgs on this movie news podcast uh <laughs> but uh this is a famously lethal system it's not like dungeons and dragons where it's really hard to have your character die or waits and come back. In Call of Cthulhu, uh, you have a handful of hit points and a single bullet can kill your character or a single bite from a monster. If you don't make right choices, the combat rules are there. But even the rule book says, try to avoid fights, you will die. So my important question, did you die or did anybody I in your party die? almost died. And it's hilarious because during our Pokemon RPG, I also almost died at the end. And um, we all play very cautiously. Like we could kind of, I think we played maybe a little too meta because we're like, oh, we should close the doors behind us and maybe uh, not go into the forest. Um, so it was, um, we, maybe we played a little too cautiously, but it, I think it it helped us survive the entire thing and not to have a high body count because our DM had talked about how, afterwards she talked about how she did another one shot with another group of players that were mostly guys. And they were just very eager to jump into the fray and they all died so we didn't we did not die but we had um quite a few close close scrapes i mean i'm so excited that you enjoyed this hd because uh i think role-playing games are such a unique and powerful form of storytelling and you just summed up the appeal to me right there two different groups with two different sets of characters played you know the same you know set of events but had a different experience and that is to me such a cool unique beautiful thing all right, I think that's going to bring us to the end of today's episode of Slash Film Daily, the podcast. You can subscribe to it on, you know, all the popular podcast apps. I'm not going to go through all of them, but you can send your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com if you'd like to do that. Uh, don't forget to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget also to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends about the show. Spread the word however you can. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Hey, Ben. Yes, Jacob. Uh, normally, I would do the Book of Insults uh, by mm -hmm. Louis A. Safian, but I've been having a weird occurrence the past few nights. I think ever since the seance we did, I feel like there's been a presence in my... <coughs> Why, hello there. I am the spirit of Louis A. Safian. Oh, no. And, <laughs> and I'm here. Wait a second. Is this the spirit of Louis A. Safian has... has uh... Take as possessed Jacob's body, everyone. Well, I'm gonna go, everybody. <laughs> See ya. I, I, I heard all of you sharing my work, and I should let you know that in the afterlife, I've taken on a new persona. I no longer write insults from beyond the grave, I write nice things to say about people. 
Oh. I'm glad to hear that, Mr. Safian. Uh, Benjamin Pearson, you may dance like no one's watching, but everyone's watching because you're an amazing dancer. Oh, thank you very much. HT, you're more fun than a ball pit filled with candy. And seriously, what could be more fun than that? Aww. Brad, <laughs> jokes are funnier when you tell them. Chris, you're better than a triple scoop of ice cream cone with sprinkles. Wow. And all <laughs> of you, make of this. all of you, if you were a box of crayons, you'd be the giant name brand one with the built-in sharpener. This I, this is so weird, guys. I don't know. Ben, if you were a scented <laughs> candle, they call it perfectly imperfect, and it would smell like summer. What? <laughs> All right, I can't. I can't handle this anymore. I think we have to. Go. Oh, wow! I feel like I blacked out there, guys. Did I miss something? No, no, Jacob, you didn't miss anything at all. Missed nothing at all. <laughs>